This was 1969. I was a 16 and a half year old Jewish boy from the right side of town and disillusioned. The Liverpool Jewish scene was so predictable, so safe. I wanted to break free from the nouveau riche-ridden snobbery and pre-programmed lives. Fuck doctor. Fuck lawyer. I had music. And that's what first got me into Toxteth, Liverpool 8, known locally as The Eight. I was playing half-decent piano by this time, and I saw an ad in a black community rag for a piano player in one of the Upper Parliament Street dives. I phoned them, and they said, Come down. We'll have a listen. It was a striptease, hostess-type club, and the only white face the whole evening was mine. I should have been over 18, but I got the gig. That very first evening, I met Derry Wilkie. Derry and the Seniors were in Hamburg in 1960, even before the Beatles. So to me, this guy was a giant. Actually, he was. Extremely tall and slim, with the sharpest features. Derry always wore bright colours and the coolest shoes. He'd make his entrance, survey the room, and with his huge hands spread out like an eagle in flight, he'd say, Hey, what's happening? It was actually a statement, not a question. Derry did voguing 20 years before Madonna, and people would feed off his charisma and buy him drinks. Halfway through my audition, he smiled his way through the room towards the piano, started singing blues, and nodded me in. Derry and I would jam, party, and do some business for the next two and a half years. I took him to meet my parents, and it was a happy time. My mother served him chicken soup, which Derry said he'd never forget. Fantastic. Our guest in Misadventures in Music this month is David Fischel, jazz pianist and author of an as-yet-to-be-published and unpublished memoir. Have you got a name for the, for the book, David? I haven't, Mick. I'm relying on you for that. <laughs> <laughs> i got to tell you, this is going to be one of the best podcasts we've ever done because David has had some life. It really is, yeah. And that opening chapter, I was feeling a bit peeved this morning, feeling a bit sorry for myself, and I thought, well, I'll read David's chapter again. It didn't half give me a lift. Fantastic, because it's a time before I was a teenager and obviously before Ian was a teenager as well, and it paints a picture of a place... That's changed so much. Yeah, I agreed. Yeah. He's a primary source. I felt reading today that you're a primary source for a Liverpool and a time that has gone, but you so vividly bring it to life for us that I feel as though I know it. So that's amazing atmosphere that you've that you're managing to tell this life of yours. That's kind of you to say. Oh no, really? And let's get it published soon. Anyway, <laughs> welcome to Misadventures in Music. Our guest today, as I mentioned before, is David Fischel, jazz pianist, who's had an amazing musical journey. And you mentioned Derry Wilkie there. And we're going to play one of his tracks from 1963 soon. But what kind of a character was he as a, 
as a musician, really, David, because a lot of people listening in all, all parts of the world, never mind just the country, will never have heard of him. Derry was just a special guy. Uh, he was colourful in every sense of the word colourful. Uh, he, he had a dramatic appearance, so visually he was just amazing. Uh, as I said, these huge hands, tall, slim guy, bright, brightly coloured clothes, and he just had a commanding charisma about him. He was a really special guy. He wasn't the greatest singer I've ever heard, but, man, he, he, you just had to look at him, you had to listen to him. He was just special in every way. I think everybody on the scene kind of looked up to him, didn't they? Yeah, literally. Uh, literally, yeah. Because yeah. uh, the first book that I ever read was The Man Who Gave the Beatles Away by, by uh, Alan Williams. Yeah. And he talks about Derry all the time. Yeah. He's mentioned in every, every other page yeah. as this, you know, larger-than-life character. Yeah. And obviously the Beatles themselves would have, would have loved him. Absolutely. Uh, and when they were all, when you got all these Liverpool lads out in the sinful port of Hamburg... Yeah. You know, hanging out together. Yeah. They obviously, you know, like any ethnicity abroad, they, they draw to each other and it, it sharpens their, you know, their sense of who they are. Absolutely. And uh, I guess he would have been in the, in the forefront of all that, wouldn't he, when they were in yeah. Hamburg? Leader of the pack. Yeah. He, he just was a leader, a natural-born leader. And people loved him. And what, so what was, the, what was the dynamic of your relationship with him? <laughs> you were, I mean, you know. <laughs> well, it started musically because, I, as I said in that opening statement, yeah. um, he, he walked through the room, yeah. started singing blues, and I just joined in. Yeah. And that was it. We sort of tied the knot there and then. Right. And then we became really, really good friends. I'm not sure how much I'm allowed to say, but uh, there were certain boats coming from certain uh, <laughs> ports in Africa <laughs> and Jamaica, and they, they were laden with all sorts of interesting goodies. It's exotic? Yeah, yeah, exotic goodies, yeah. yeah. Uh, herbal <laughs> remedies. <you know. laughs> and, uh, and Derry said, how come you're more interested in that sort of other thing no. when there are these boats coming in with these exotic goodies. And, uh, and so that formed another relationship, and we, uh, we did some business. Okay, uh, made a bit of money. We certainly did, yeah. yeah. But with okay. Derry, it was money in, money out. He just had no regard or interest in money. It right. Just, it was whatever was in his pocket. So would you feel as though um, you're uh, being friends with him and having this relationship with him, did that open up an entirely different world for you. Was it he the, certainly was did. he the, you know, the... Yeah, do you know what? Until you just said that, Ian, yeah. I've never thought of it in that way. Yeah. <clears throat> but Derry did. He yeah. opened my eyes, literally opened my eyes. And he was... It's been so older. exciting for you, then. Oh, man, I was a kid. Yeah. And well, he's yeah, this yeah. giant, you yeah. know, showing me around. As you said, because you were talking just then about deeply conservative, with, with little C, yeah. uh, Jewish Liverpool, yeah. going da- coming down into yeah. Toxeth, Liverpool 8... And then, and then it's, it's wild. It was 13 yeah. bus stops away. <laughs> but I'd get the AC6, universe away. The AC6 yeah. at Mather Avenue, Booker Avenue, and suddenly I was in Granby, Granby yeah. Street, and that was a man. It wow. was just... Well, let's play your first choice today, which is Derry Wilkie and the Pressman from 1963. Hallelujah, I love her so. Let me tell you about a girl I know. She's my baby and I love her so. And the sun comes down She bring me coffee and I'm all around So I know, yeah I know Oh hallelujah, I love a song When I'm in trouble and I need a friend I know she stick with me until the end 
Everybody ask me how I know I smile and tell them, say she told me so That's how I know, yes I know oh, Hallelujah, I love her so If she called me on the telephone Say baby, I'm all alone Sometimes she count from three to four I hear on my door In the evening when the sun come on She give me coffee in my favorite cup She kisses me and then she hold me tight I said, baby, everything's all right That's how I know, yes I know, yeah Hallelujah, I love her so If she call me on the telephone Say, baby, I'm all alone Sometimes she count from three to four I hear on my door In the evening when the sun goes down And there ain't nobody else around She kisses me and then she holds me tight I say, no, baby, I'm all right That's how I know Yes, I know Yeah, hallelujah amazing absolutely amazing i what fascinates me here david is this liverpool is still kind of a bit like it's two cities going on. You know, there's the, the there's parts of South Liverpool, you you would never, they're nowhere near Kirkdale, you know what I mean? They're very much uh, two cities. But back in, in, when you're talking about these days, you get on the bus at one end and, you know, enter a completely different domain by the time you got off. Absolutely. And here's little me. Yeah. Somehow fitting into to both of those scenes. Right. Okay. Although I was bored by the Jewish thing at that time. Yeah. Uh, but to get off the bus and to go to Granby, it was uh, just uh, literally a different world. So it was, I mean, because it would have been different music, different food. Yeah. The, the way the people looked was different, Fruit different language. outside the shops, not inside like a right. traditional grocery. Yeah. Uh, but outside, displayed, you know, with all these um, colours and exotic what fruits did your, and What did your people, your family, make of your sojourns into this... Uh... I was incredibly lucky, and I had the most liberal parents ever. Oh, OK, good, ever. Yeah. They yeah. were amazing. Right. And they were just, watch out, son, watch out for yourself. Yeah. You know, it's great that you're meeting these new people, great that you're going to these places, getting these experiences. Just, you know, keep a lookout, because... You know, you're not fully integrated into these scenes. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's dangerous. It's, you know, oh, man, this is the thing that I find fascinating when I was reading your story is that you are a living embodiment of Liverpool, the port city, mm. and all of those different tribes of the world exist here. You know, the oldest Chinese community, the oldest African community, you know, huge Jewish community at that time. And you're, you're living it and going in between it all uh, in in a cosmopolitan way, but you're also deeply aware that it's a, it's an edgy place. It's well, the dangerous. guys the guys taught me how to fight. Oh, okay. When I started making yeah. good friends, friendships yeah. with not just individuals, but they'd take me back and meet their families. 
So I really was becoming integrated. But the guys said, the black guys. Yeah, yeah, yeah. African Jamaican. They said yeah. you're going to have to learn to fight, man, because there are fights. What age like, would you be? Sixteen and a half, seventeen. Something like that. Wow. Your mum and dad deserve credit. <laughs> they didn't God know rest about souls because yeah. my mum and dad would have had a duck egg and they'd have barred yeah. me yeah. and just sell it. You're yeah. not going there. They didn't know about the fighting. Yeah. But that, that was sort of a bit of personal insurance, really. And I graduated in a fight, graduated in an inverted commas, yeah. at, uh, at one of the clubs. I think it was the Ghana Club. Right. And uh, a fight broke out and I waded in to help some of the, the people. And you your stripes. Man. Yeah, that was it. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> right, okay. Now you're in, boy. Yeah. yeah. So how did you, how did you find out about the about the vacancy in Derry's band? Well, it wasn't a vacancy as such. It was I saw in um, as I said in the opening a, a local community rag, you know, and they were looking for a piano player in one of the Upper Poly Street uh, dives. So I just phoned them. They said, "Come down." And I did. And Derry happened to be there. It was pure, purely fortuitous. Right. It was like I sounded like Boris Johnson. So when you're 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 a you're a jazz player uh, to begin with. You know, can I just very quickly jump in there? Sorry, Ian, no. but I've always said to people, I'm not good enough to be a jazz musician. Right. And most people, jazz musicians I've played with, have said, "What are you talking about? Of course you are, yeah. but I'm not." Because I had too many interests. I was too diverse. Okay. And I never had the, well, what Jewish people in Yiddish call sits, yeah. flesh, meaning right. the, the meat of sit. Mean? It means sitting on your ass and doing the practice, oh, putting okay, the hours yeah. in, yeah. playing the scales, okay. learning your instruments so it becomes as Charlie Parker You can said. be bothered with that. <laughs> no, I couldn't. Yeah. It has to be an extension of yeah. your body, like an arm or a leg. You have to have that facility on your instruments. Okay. I never did. But the guy said, you swing, man, so you can play ah. with us. Well, this is, what, this is what I was going to say. This is my question. So you've, you've, you've come from, the, once you've entered this new world, fascinating world of a, a completely different culture, mm. even though it's down the road in the same city. <laughs> yes. How did you play and change? What happened with your playing? Uh, they gave me confidence. Right. Saying, this guy swings, this guy can play the blues, this guy can play this, that and the other. And that confidence made me sit down more, made me practice more. Okay. Um, but I'm self-taught, so I still can't read a nose of music. Yeah. But, same uh, here. Yeah, 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 yeah. You know, it doesn't matter, does uh, it? I think it's yeah. an advantage in some yeah, I think cases. so, yeah. So uh, they, they just helped me expand. Right. Okay, so, so then, because you, you're exposed to all of this stuff, yeah. and you, you go firing off in different uh, directions, yeah. creatively, you know. Then the, the next aim was to get a little band together, because okay. <clears throat> I got really bored just sitting there practicing yeah. the piano by myself. So I got a little uh, trio together with a really close friend, uh, Tony Rosenthal. His dad played for Tranmere. Oh, really? And, I'm a Tranmere um, fan, so... Uh, yeah, and, uh, right, yeah, me too. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, they ran a big business called Kirby Tires. And Anyway, Tony uh, still works for that company, oh, so yeah. he was on bass. And there was a crazy solicitor, man, a solicitor yeah. called Roger. Was it Roger Bialetti? It was a solicitor... Uh, uh, just a very special guy. Right. You'd need another podcast. These are all Jewish kids as well. No, no, Tony was, but Tony. Roger wasn't. Yeah. And, oh man, it were, there were so many things. Yeah. I, the first what were gig, you called? What was the name of the band? Were the Allotones? Or the, <laughs> oh, the wow. Allotones or the Infinitives? One or the other. Well, okay. I remember I had two bands. The Allotones? The Allotones, yeah. Yeah. Band. yeah, well, we ripped that off from a, a band called the High Tones. Oh, okay. So we ripped yeah. off, you know, it was yeah. like a suburb thing. Yeah. Um, the very first gig, it was, was it the Grafton? I think we were playing at the, the Grafton rooms, I think. Anyway, massive stage, converted cinema. 
I, we were so nervous. It was our first gig. Yeah. And I was playing organ, big Hammond organ, Tony on bass, Roger on drums. Roger was perilously close to the side of the stage. And I counted in without looking at Roger. Oh, sorry, Roger used to love a drink. Oh, okay. Really <laughs> loved a drink. I counted in one. Two, we were going to play Fly Me to the Moon was the very first number yeah. one. Two, one two, two, and I dived in. Tony was there. After four bars, I realised there's no drums. Roger, I'd asked him to cue the DJ to stop because we were going to start. Roger had sort of over-cued him, lent a little bit too far, and he'd taken a dive off oh, the stage. He fell joking. into the DJ. No. Yeah. Tony and I were so absorbed, we didn't even oh, hear it happen, really? and we carried on. Roger recovered through, about halfway through the song right. and started playing <laughs> drums. It was, there was so many... You know, Would I be right in assuming yeah. that the Hammond organ was the clubs and not your It was own? the clubs, you're you right. You be carrying the Leslie round no, and the Hammond no, itself. No, C3, no. Yeah, oh, it was, geez, the, it was yeah. the clubs. Yeah. Yeah. It didn't rise up from the... Uh, uh, the floor, like Dr. Fives. No, that was a good jazz organ. It yeah, was oh, they're brilliant. just amazing, aren't they? Do you know, there were over 400 working men's clubs, yeah. social clubs, church clubs at that time on Merseyside. Wow. And that was our apprenticeship. Yeah. We went round, not all of them, but a lot of them. Wow. Very little money. Yeah. And you know the fighting thing, which the, the guys taught me? Yeah. That came in handy at some of those clubs because you're off, not often, but you sometimes had to fight to get your money. Really? The concert secretary. Yeah. You were too loud. Yeah. You, fuck up. You know. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I mean, give us the money now, man, or we'll burn your place down. And it was wow. that sort of thing. It was so aggressive this. to see. This is primary history. You had to yeah. fight to music, get your money. You played like music. two, three hours, and then yeah. you're begging or fighting for your money. Yeah. It yeah. was madness. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I, we were second place to the bingo. Bingo, yeah. was, bingo <laughs> yeah. was always yeah. top of the bill. Yeah. This, this uh, as you say, it's first-hand experience, and it's so alien. Everything David's talking about yeah. is so alien, but there are bits you can remember that other people have told yeah. you. It's, it's bringing it alive, isn't it? Yeah, it's beautiful. Uh, can we play a track of Charlie Parker's that you've mentioned? Is that okay? From 1950, I think this is. <laughs> Thank you. 
That just sounds like New York City to me, yeah, David. What is it about uh, Charlie Parker or Bird, as you were just telling me? Yeah. Is is it nickname? What is it that, about him that makes him your your number one fella, the one that you uh, love the most? I think, well, obviously, musically for me, he was a god. He's my personal god. Yeah. Nobody has ever achieved that level of, of fluency and that creativity to to spontaneously improvise at such speed if he, if he wanted to. The thing is, the jazz, the only time jazz has been the sort of pop music of the day is during the 30s, the era of the big bands. So uh, you're Glenn Miller, you're Benny Goodman. This, these were predominantly white bands. Okay. And black people felt that the music had been taken from them because, you know, jazz comes from, from the cotton fields. Yeah. Well, from Africa. Yeah, yeah. Slavery, yeah. cotton fields, from misery, from torture, from oppression. Yeah. And the black people, the black musicians felt that the music had been taken away by white people and business people, record companies and other musicians. So Bird and, and the people around him, Dizzy Gillespie, Kenny Clark, Thelonious Monk, these people were pioneers and literally took the music downstairs into cellar clubs ah. and they made it more difficult to play, more difficult to understand that they, it was almost like a code and they called that genre of jazz bop or bebop right. uh, which is on a mass appear goes this sort of thing and uh, so they were pioneers they were revolutionaries right. but insanely brilliant creative yeah. musicians but I, I love that. Is it's like a it's a form of rebel music, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. Is what it is uh, the punk of his day, yeah. in a way. Yeah, of yeah, course. Yeah. Well, you know, like a, a lot of them, folk and blues and reggae, they all have their roots in a in a culture. Absolutely, um, trying to defend itself. Yeah, in a way, which Nicely I love. Put. And how did you first get into that kind of music? Because presumably, in the fifties, it was all rock and roll or skiffle or pop. What brought you to it, David? That's a really good question. There was a band, I don't know if you remember, called The Peddlers. Do you remember The Peddlers? No. Yeah. They were great, man. An English yeah. band. An organ-based guy called Roy Phillips, who sang like a white guy. Yeah. Sang like a white Liverpool, Jewish guy. I think Roy Phillips might have been. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. And I heard the, the Peddlers on the radio, rushed out, asked my dad for some money, rushed out, bought The Peddlers LP, and learned every note uh, you know, that Roy was playing. So what year are you talking about? Oh, just, give, just nail it a bit. <laughs> um, middle 60s, something right. like that oh, would okay. it be. Okay. Anyway, so uh, the peddlers became... You know, this I was met, your entrance I met point. him, actually, uh, later on in life, at a club in Worthington. It was insane. They were toplining, and we were the house band back in Arsis. And we stayed up the whole night and just wow. talked and drank. Wow. <laughs> it was fantastic. So the peddlers, and I thought, there's got to be something more, because they were playing... Within a jazzy way, yeah, and, and it was intriguing, and I loved it. And I thought, there's got to be something more. And then, miraculously, on the radio, on Radio Three, uh, what was it? Was it called the Third? But the Third the, program. The Third yeah. program, maybe at that time. And they had a lot of jazz. They still do. And I heard Charlie Parker, and man, it hit me. It was like a knife, like a dagger through wow. the heart. It hit me, and I thought, that's the thing. Yeah, that's what I've been looking for. That's what I knew there had to be. And at this point, were you already playing the piano, or did you just... Yeah, but not did, jazz. Oh, no, yeah. um, no, I wasn't playing. I came to piano really later, okay. at 16. So you heard Charlie Parker say, this is what I'm going to do with my Yeah, life. I played guitar first yeah. from the age of 11. Okay. Then I taught myself clarinet badly, and then I went to <laughs> sax and then to piano. Okay. So I was playing sax at that time. Yeah. 
So, um, yeah, I love that. And, and how many people, how many other people of your generation would have been aware of the likes of Charlie Parker? Because this is 15 years after he died. Yeah, not many. It, it, it's for, and still is for, what's the word, aficionados? Yeah, aficionados. yeah, yeah. It, It's just got a select club, it's like, it's like Guinness, you know? Yeah. <laughs> you either, or Marmite, isn't yeah. that the one? You either love it or hate it. it. It's like an in thing. You have to practice listening to jazz. But once you're hooked, you're hooked. Right, and okay. You, you, you're in danger of becoming a jazz snob yeah. because nothing else feels to match up. And it's <laughs> only in later years that I've listened to Pink Floyd, uh, right. to, 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 you know, to the great uh, White Snake, you know, ACDC, to, to Dylan, yeah, to, okay. to all of these people who I never would have listened to, never did. Because you thought they were rubbish. I'm sorry, but I did. And I don't hear words. I don't hear words. They go right over my head. I only hear music. Oh, really? Somebody has to say, Dave, would you sit down and listen to the words? They're okay. beautiful. They're meaningful. I do not hear them. They just go right over my head. Yeah. Uh, the first thing I hear is bass, and then I separate isn't the that, instruments. Yeah. Separate the instruments and, and at the same time as listening. Uh, so uh, you feel, when you're listening to music, you're feeling what the musicians are playing. Totally. It. It's a, it, it operates on a, on a subconscious level. Yeah. Uh, it does, yeah. it does. The way that the music you know, enters you. When I, I was scouting around for a bass player or a sax player, or, you know, for one of the bands, for whatever reason, I could tell how a musician played if they were good or bad on the phone. Wow. I really could. I know it sounds arrogant, but yeah. I, I don't mean it to sound arrogant. Yeah. I could hear how a person could play just by talking to them for five minutes. Wow. <laughs> now, I love that. we've just heard what David said about musicianship. Yeah. The next track he's chosen will knock your head off. Go on. Because <laughs> you won't be expecting it. Okay. I don't like you. I don't like you, town. I don't want to like you. I'll shop around. I don't want you. I don't want you, town. I don't want to want you. I'll shop around. Jump around. I can get a train. I don't need no hamburgers, no takeaway. I want my own game. No bacon take, no strawberry milkshake. I want a picnic. I'm sick, sick of seeing signs to eat. Walking down these dark, lonely streets. I don't know you. I don't know you, town. I don't want to know you. I'll shop around. Shop around. I can get a train. I don't need no hamburgers, no takeaway. I want my own game. No bacon take, no strawberry milkshake. I do better. Hell, I do better. Sleep in the trees, naked in the breeze. But I got no more chicken. I'm no fighting and fishing. Wow. Go wild in the country wow. 
Hey, David, how have we got from Charlie Parker to Bow Wow Wow? <laughs> how we, the hell has that happened? We went through Morecambe. Right, okay. <laughs> okay, so I moved from Liverpool because I, I was finally offered a job as a band leader. Right. So I, I had a band, uh, the house band at the Morecambe Bowl, which was a thousand Caesar. Yeah. Um, and that was me. I was there for 18 months. And then me and my then girlfriend, uh, we moved to, to London. I think all beginnings are difficult. Yeah. But I was lucky and I pretty quickly got into the London scene. So I was doing recording sessions. I was very early to, to learn how to use synthesizers and stuff. And yeah. so I got sessions. I was doing gigs. But then I answered a melody maker, which was our Bible at the time yeah. for, for gigging musicians if you needed a job. I answered a half page ad at the back of Melody Maker and there was somebody a company looking for somebody who, who might be able to write music for a, a new musical a radical musical phoned up blabbed away on the phone and a week later I got a knock on the door didn't know who it was and it turned out to be Malcolm McLaren who formed um, with his then partner girlfriend Vivian Westwood the, yeah. the fashion guru yeah. uh, they formed punk rock man yeah, and, did, yeah. and the Sex Pistols came about and post Sex Pistols uh, Malcolm was at my doorstep and we became incredible friends I worked for him for three years and oh. I was his right hand man well, talent I, scout and I, I discovered Annabella from Bow Wow Wow okay because I I, uh, I read the uh, piece that you wrote about, he, he said, don't you know who I am? And because you're a jazzer, <laughs> yeah, not a and Charlie Parker and all of that, you didn't know the first thing about the Sex Pistols and, and the punk rock revolution and no, the no. new wave thing and everything that came after it. It didn't mean anything to you. I'd seen the Mohicans, I'd seen the safety pins, but, that was but I didn't it. know what it was. Yeah. And certainly not so, the music. So Malcolm McLaren says to you, you don't know who I am. <laughs> I'm the Sex Pistols guy. Yeah, and I was still blank. Yeah. Oh, wait a minute, sex, I think I've heard of that. Yeah. And he said, okay, let's go and have lunch. And right. we'll talk things through, and that was that. So, Malcolm McLaren, I had the uh, I had the pleasure of an afternoon with him once. We were making our first record in Metropolis Studios in Chiswick. And he was friends with Gary Langan, who was producing the record. And Gary, uh, he came in to see Gary, and they were just yapping for hours. And then he played some of our songs. And Malcolm McLaren was really kind about it. Actually. He said, oh, you, you sound like the new Dexys Midnight Runners. Um, and all uh, the whole time, I'm just looking, I'm going... You kind of invented the mode of music that turned me into a musician, you know, because oh. I only came on board with punk rock and new wave and the jam oh. and the clash and all that stuff. Right. They were my Charlie Parker, yeah. and he was very garrulous all, all afternoon. But but what was he actually like as a fella? Lonely. Oh, really? Malcolm didn't really have friends. Ah. It, it, Malcolm knew everybody. Everybody knew Malcolm. Yeah. Everybody listened to Malcolm, yeah. whether it was a top record company executive, EMI, Sony, CBS, or at these, he used to take me to these parties, you know, the, the Freuds, you know, the Freud family, yeah. Emma Freud and oh, Lucian yeah. Freud. Yeah. And, and Malcolm would stand up. And people would sit at his feet like disciples. Because he was the godfather of the, of the musical revolution. Yeah. So was they the thought of, that he could see something that, that they needed to know. Mal, Mal was just, he saw into the future. He was a trendsetter. And this is in fashion and in music, both those things. And he combined them brilliantly. Yeah. Fashion and music he thought were interchangeable and belonged together. And they both belonged to young people. Yeah. That okay. was his thing. Young people own music. Right. So he's at, at this point now. You're working with him, yeah, and you become good friends. Yeah, very good friends. And he asks you to find a young singer. Yeah, 
He, he'd stolen the ants from Adam. Right, okay. So he had, um, he had guitar-based drums. Yeah. And he needed somebody to front that band. Right. And he said, I think a girl might do it. Go and find me a young girl. And I, Malcolm, where do I go and find a young girl? He said, McDonald's. I said, what, what, what? McDonald's, he said. Oh, wait a minute. He said, outside schools. See the kid who the, uh, when they come out of school, yeah. see the kid who's surrounded by other kids. That's the ringleader. That's my singer. Right. And I said, wait a minute, Malcolm. I'm going to get <laughs> arrested. Yeah, yeah, the, you yeah, know, this yeah. is ridiculous. Yeah. And it, just by pure luck, after a month of looking, right. not really hanging out at yeah. schools, <laughs> but certainly them. McDonald's right. uh, and, and that sort of What bit. he's talking about then, yeah. he's talking about um, you've got to look at, at the proletariat. You've got yeah, to look streets. at ordinary people, yeah. street people, because yeah. uh, that's where... You know the the new talent might be exactly not not somebody who who you think where it might come from, because you're going to get it wrong that way. It's just know? going to be prescribed. It's yeah, going to be somebody copying somebody else. Yeah. He wanted originality. Yeah. So ideally, somebody who'd never fronted a band, who'd never sung publicly before. Yeah. Well, like, was like John Lydon himself, you know. Yeah. Exactly. You know, so where did you find Annabelle then? Well, I lived in Forley Road, which are in in um, West Hampstead. And I only found out years and years later that Forley Road was a hotbed for musicians from the 60s. And there were loads of musicians, apparently, who had lived there. Purely coincidental. Every day, I'd finish my phone calls and musical arrangements and stuff. And so it'd be about one, two in the afternoon. I'd go round the corner to the local dry cleaner called Shamrock, owned by an Irish family. In the back of the, uh, the dry cleaner, there was... You know when they, they, they press the clothes for you after they come out the, the dry cleaning machine? It's called a Hoffman Press. Huge, big machine to put the clothes in. So the steam billowing from these machines. And there was George, a bit Derry Wilkie-like, tall, slim, black guy, big, big smile. And George would drink Guinness. George would smoke his special herbal remedies all day long. And Larry, the, the, the owner's son who ran the, the dry cleaning business, let him do it because George's clothes were perfectly creased and they were perfect. And one Saturday, I go in to see George to start the day properly or the afternoon properly. <laughs> and uh, there's Annabella doing a Saturday job, you know, and uh, singing her heart out to the radio. I think it was, it was either a Stevie Wonder song or maybe Gloria Gaynor, I Will Survive, something like that. And she's singing, and man, the voice. And I thought, that's it. There's my girl. Which is really weird, isn't it? Very, You've very been weird. with something. Yeah. And then all of a sudden, the universe provides it. On my doorstep. On your doorstep. Almost yeah. literally. It was yeah. like 15 steps away, just around the corner. And there but she, was, but she was young, wasn't she? Because my, my overriding memory of Bow Wow Wow was when they got put out and promoted, was they made a virtue of the fact that she was really young in a way that now, viewing it through the prism of the Savile scandal and everything, the, in the modern era, it would be frowned upon or at least questioned what's what's going on here who's the Sven Gali what's yeah. the you know because it was Malcolm's cause, reputation yeah yeah because it, yeah. yeah, it was yeah of course yeah. that you know it was scandal yeah and the first thing anybody ever mentioned about Bow Wow Wow was the singer's really young 14 or 15? She was 14 and a half and Malcolm um, insisted that we tell the press she was 15 and a half going on 16 she was 14 and a half wow and her choosing had my fit. words, <laughs> choosing my words carefully, or at least trying to choose my words carefully. Yeah. 
what was Malcolm's relationship with her and what, what is the image he wanted to propagate, uh, propagate? He wanted a young, fierce warrior to excite a, a, a new generation to a new type of music. It, it, it would be what came after punk. And he'd found that Burundi drums from Africa were incredibly exciting, tribal. And he got the boys in the band to to somehow approximate that sound uh, of African music. And he needed a fierce warrior to front that. And this became Annabella. She, she had that voice penetrating. Who, can you remember who wrote the songs? Malcolm wrote most of the lyrics. I oh, did. And uh, Lee... Lee Gorman, the bass player, was very instrumental, literally instrumental, yeah, yeah. in writing the music. Okay. It was collaborative, but Malcolm wrote the lyrics. Right. And uh, they're amazing. I mean, that very first track, C30, C60, C90, yeah. Go, about pirating music on yeah. cassette, yeah. was brilliant. Yeah. And, and he gets it released on a record company, and he's yeah. saying... You know, I remember when they came out, and it was, yeah. you know... Uh, uh, you, I mean, it was, it was at the forefront of the publicity for the, for the band that... It was a Malcolm McLaren thing, wasn't it? Yeah. You know what I mean? So, yeah, uh, absolutely. Yeah, I'd, I'd, I'm not so sure how it would be appreciated these days. No, look, I mean, I mean, we can talk about this because we're talking about the Savile era, as Ian mentioned before, and we know that she was under 16, mm-hmm. and Malcolm was trying to manipulate that image. Yeah. Can you just explain what that is? Because uh, people that don't know this story will be shocked. You know... There was sex involved. I mean, one of Malcolm and Vivian's shops was called Sex, sex on, the, yeah. on the King's yeah. Road. So sex was involved. But in terms of Annabella, and Annabella being 14 and a half, it was difficult. When they did their first gig, it was successful. Boy George, by the way, was the support act. He begged Malcolm to, to support them. And, uh, yeah. it, it was crazy. Um, Malcolm phoned me in the middle of the night. And I, uh, as he often did, yeah. and I said, wow, Mal, it was brilliant. Annabella, the band, it was like, no, he said, it wasn't at all. You're going to have to call an emergency meeting. She's probably going to have to go. And I said, what are you talking about? She brought the place down. She was brilliant. He said, she's a virgin. How in hell is she going to excite the boys in the audience? How in hell is she going to get the girls in the audience to look up to her? She hasn't been yeah. F, you fill in the gaps. Yeah. She's a virgin. Somebody's going to have to F, fill in the gaps, her. Yeah. Malcolm, you're talking statutory rape. What yeah. are you talking about? And he said, it's got to be that way. She has to have had that experience. So you had a meeting about this, didn't you? We had a meeting. He, we, he called an emergency meeting the next day without Annabella, of course. Yeah. Matthew Ashman, who's no longer with us, the guitarist. Matthew says, you're talking rape, man. And he said, that's funny you uh, chip in, uh, Matthew, because you're the one she fancies. You're going to have to do the, the deed. <laughs> I stood up and said, guys, are you going to stay here with this sick Bastard, yeah. or are you coming with me? And they walked, and Malcolm oh, so just you, sat uh, there good, looking lonelier than ever. Really, yeah. Did her family know about this, uh, um, David? She was brought up by her mum uh, from Burma, uh, so single mother. And I, uh, the, the day I asked her to come and audition, to the day I met her in the dry cleaning shop, she said, oh, I'd have to ask my mum. I said, no, I have to ask your mum. Annabella, can I meet your mum? And she just lived down the road, so, uh, yeah. Called her, met her, 
told her about Malcolm McCrown. She'd heard about the Sex Pistols, was very, very dubious about the whole thing, but her daughter was so excited about being offered the opportunity to sing in a band. She said, okay, but I'm coming. I said, oh, that's the thing. Malcolm won't have a parent there, but he insists that she take a friend. So she took her, brought a friend to the studio for the audition, and the mother was, you know, was nervous. <laughs> and was that the kind... Was that the end of your, in inverted commas, relationship with him, or, or did you work with him again, or was that it? Um, well, I mean, on and off for three years with Malcolm on various projects. We tried to get the musical worked out, this musical that he, he was advertising for, for a, uh, uh, somebody to help him write the music for. So there were various projects. So you said at the beginning that you... I said, what was he like? And you said he was lonely. Yeah. So what made you... Um, what was it that happened or you saw that made you think there's something, you know, amiss in his, in his world and his life? There's a, there's a sadness I, there. I think it's Asperger's right, okay. syndrome. Yeah. I think Malcolm possibly either benefited or, or, or suffered. I think there was a degree of autism. Okay. As you'll find, I think Malcolm was a genius. Yeah. And <clears throat> I think you'll find that sometimes. Uh, he just didn't understand the social codes Right. So he could talk and talk and talk. He could smile and laugh a lot, but he didn't understand people. Yeah. He was a manipulator. Right. He was, in a way, a Svengali. Yeah. And as a result of that, he was lonely. Interestingly, um, in the chapter that you sent to me before the um, podcast, when you first met Malcolm McLaren and Vivian Westwood, she said something to you, didn't she? Oh, that's, that's interesting. You've got a good memory, Mick. <laughs> um, yeah, um, they and when I found Annabella and she got the gig, um, they were so pleased and, uh, and they invited me to one of their favourite Chinese restaurants in Soho. They, they used to eat in Soho the whole time, Chinese, Chinese, Chinese. And uh, so I'm sitting there. Malcolm went to the loo and Vivian, who I hadn't yet met, she leaned across the table and said, David, be careful. I said, be careful, what? be careful, beware of Malcolm. And I said, oh, Viv, what do you mean? I, I don't understand. And she said, Malcolm's dangerous. He absorbs what people have to offer if he likes them, and he likes you, David. So he will drain you of everything you have that he thinks he might need, that he thinks he might be able to use. And then he might just spit you out. It can be dangerous. Watch out for Malcolm, she said. And did he? Did he spit you out? No, I okay. spat him out at the end uh, <laughs> because he sabotaged the gig I would have, I really wanted. I, I auditioned okay. for a band called Squeeze. Ah, yeah. And, yeah. Uh, and this was to replace Jules Holland. Yeah. yeah. And uh, Malcolm sabotaged that gig and that pretty much was the end of our relationship. Okay, yeah. Interesting. Because they offered you the gig, didn't they? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I, it was Miles Copeland, the, the manager, yeah. Stuart Copeland, the drummer's brother. Yeah. And I did a week with the band and they offered me the gig. And uh, they said the, the terms of me getting that gig were that I had to yeah. sever my friendship and relationship with Malcolm McLaren, who they thought was uh, an anarchist, subversive. They didn't like anything about him. This was a high-class, glossy pop band. Yeah. And they wanted nothing to do with the likes of Malcolm McLaren. And I said to Miles, thank you so much for the week. I love you. I love the guys. But nobody tells me who my friends are. Oh, you know, I was young, man. Yeah. And, you know, oh, and no, that's good, so though. It wasn't like arrogance. That. It was just like, nobody tells because me who my friends are. Because to be honest with you, yeah. you know, um, the subversive guys, 
sounds much yeah. more fun than the, yeah, than the glossy pop. Oh, I was ones. learning so much from Malcolm, you yeah. know, that yeah. I'd never have learned from Squeeze. Well, yeah. I'd have had industry, music industry credibility, I'd have had money in my back pocket, yeah. but nothing could replace a friendship with no. Malcolm. But that was the end, really, yeah. effectively. Oh, well, we found story. the title for his book, haven't we? What? I spat out Malcolm McLeod. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds like a Freddy Star sort of thing. Yeah, it does, doesn't it? Right, we're going to have another leap now. Go on. Are you ready? Hold on to your
So, David, that's the uh, Brecker Brothers from New York City. How did you get to Norway? <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. I've What's, to, what, what, I'm going to make we're this We're going brief. off on yet another magnificent tangent here. Oh, man. So I'm in a studio in London. Yeah. And I finished my session. And I'm walking past and the, uh, another studio door was slightly ajar. And I hear this voice. Oh, my God, a female voice. So poke my head in and the sound engineer's got a big smile on his face and he's recording this girl. She finishes. I, I, I said, can I stay? And he said, yeah, yeah. And she was just doing some commercials, you know, overdubs, stuff like that, backing vocals, really. Turns out this is Svetlana. Svetlana Plotnikova from Tashkent. But she moved to, uh, to Moscow. She ran away from home. A Russian girl, a singer. She was just... Anyway, so we start dating. Okay. And she says... You don't love me, David. And I said, I, I do love you, Svetlana. Why do you say that? You don't love me. I said, why? Because you want to come to live with me. You don't invite me to live with you. And I said, baby, we've only been going out two months. You know what we're living with? But we can travel together. And I said, travel? What is this travel? And she said, I have seen uh, the advert in the Melody Maker. Again, Melody Maker came into my life. Yeah. For English band, touring Norway. We can travel. We can join band. Then we can try to live together. We join band. We travel. So we did, we did an audition. We got the gig. We went to Norway. On the very first gig, very posh gig, playing covers, you know, like yeah. a dan- dance band in a very big hotel in Norway's second bigger city, Bergen. And uh, she got jealous at the end of the gig. She thought I was paying too much attention to a female disc jockey right. who'd also started that night, and she was from Bristol. Yeah. Were you? And, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and she said, I don't want to meet this jockey. Keep the music live. I don't like this jockey. Why you go to... I said, because she's from England. It's only polite. We yeah. go downstairs, say hello to Sarah Jane. You go. You go, I don't go. So uh, I stayed 20 minutes. Sarah Jane bought me a beer. She said, oh, brilliant. We're going to have a month you know, together. And the, the band are English. And they're yeah. oh, lovely. You know? and so I get back to our uh, little room. So now we're living together in this little room. With Svetlana. With yes. Svetlana. Yeah. <clears throat> she's been drinking because she, she's Russian. Yes. Yeah. And so she picks up um, a, a bottle, a small bottle of beer, uh, from the, the coffee table, she smashes it over the coffee table, runs across the room and stabs me. No. Yeah, man. She says, Go you away. have been with this woman. I said, well, I've been to 20 minutes, Svetlana. I must be a very bad lover. Yeah. yeah 20 minutes. Yeah. And uh, she stabs me. She uh, went for the jugular and no. I raised my arm to defend myself and it cut the nerve in my uh, left arm. Fuck. Rushed sake. to hospital. The police were called. They said, this is, you've been attacked. I said, no. They said, you have. Right. The, the doctors have told us this is serious. Yeah. You've been attacked. I said, can we say that where I come from in Liverpool, we call this a domestic incident, and, yeah. and that's that. And he says, very nice, you're trying to pretend. And one of the other girls in the band pointed at Svetlana and said, she did it. She did it to Dave. She stabbed him. And really? So Svetlana what, what was... What damage was done to you? It was really bad. Was it? Yeah. yeah. I had to do the rest of the gig with a massive big girl. <laughs> so, but you can still do the Played kick. with one hand with a dinner jacket, you know, tuxedo wow. and did one, one hand. Did they Oh, God, Anne Howe. And he was a student. It oh. was the middle of the night. And he said, I'm a student doctor. I will do oh. the best, Mr. Fisher, I can for you. <laughs> so to him there, the police there, it was chaos. The band there, Svetlana crying her eyes, I love you, I love you. The police gave her the option to either leave on the next 
plane, the very next plane back to her country of origin. Yeah. But she said, I have British passports. So, okay, go back to London. Yeah. Go, go. Yeah. Or you can come and sample one of our Norwegian jails here in Bergen. And I said, Svetlana, you're going, baby. You're going. You're not staying. You yeah. have to go. You can't go to jail. You don't love me. I said, Svetlana, go. Yeah. It was serious. It was, it was a Damn bad right, thing. I don't I love go. you. <laughs> I mean, we can't see the, the, the scar on this podcast. I can show you. There's still, yeah. after all that, I'm a little scar. Really? Yeah. And, uh, oh and my god and this is like the first couple of days of you being in Norway it was the first day really yeah. so I went the, the contract was for a month and I stayed did 20 did she apologise in any way or we never <clears throat> up until some many many years later we yeah. didn't have closure she left and that was that I didn't want to speak to her yeah you wouldn't no no I no. mean she could have it yeah. was possible yeah, could have killed me, yeah. certainly could have ended career, you know, yeah. my career and all that, blah, blah, blah. Anyway, I'm in London many, many, many years later, and, um, working for NRK, which is the Norwegian public broadcaster, the same as the BBC, yeah. uh, across all media. And I was working for them in a radio capacity. They sent me to London to research jazz. NRK wanted to start a dedicated jazz channel. I'm researching it. I'm in my hotel room, and I thought, Svetlana. We never got closure. So I phoned the BBC Russian department because I knew there was a guy there, uh, Sever Levenstein, who Svetlana knew. And I said, is Sever Levenstein still here? He runs the department. Uh, who are you? I said, put Sever on. Who are you? I said, well, my name's David Fischl. I, I think he'll speak to me. Sever comes to the phone. He says, Fischl, what do you do? Why, why are you here? Oh, no. You want to meet Svetlana again? Oh, no. It will be chaos again. I said, look, I'm not going to ask you for her phone number. Here's the hotel, uh, the, the number to the hotel I'm staying, my room number. Call her for me, please, Sever. Mm-hmm. We never got closure on this. All I want to do is and say how long goodbye. after the, the stabbing oh, incident God, was this? Yes. Okay. God, right. I'm, so my memory's shocking. 10, 15 years? Something like that. So what happens is, about 10 minutes later, the phone goes, and it's Svetlana. Fischl, what do you want? <laughs> she was really like that. She was hilarious, but she was very abrupt. Anyway, yeah. so we meet... And she comes to some pub near the Elephant and Castle that she's liked. Yeah. And she's the same. She hasn't changed. She looks the same. Yeah. She's the same character, just mad. Yeah. Uh, excitingly mad. Yeah. Dynamic character. Yeah. And she's got a plastic bag with her. <laughs> and so I said... <laughs> and you're ducking. <laughs> and I'm thinking, why your, would she bring a plastic bag? You've got to, your crash helmet on. <laughs> exactly. And uh, I said, what do you want? You know what I drink. Why you ask? I said, well, vodka. Yeah, two. Double. Give me vodka. So I go to the bar. And by the time I come back, the two tables adjacent to her are all just in tears, in bulk. She's got the whole place laughing. And this was Svetlana. So anyway, cut, cut a long story what short. What was in the plastic bag? That was what I was coming to. And she pulls out Ray Charles. Through the Eyes of Love, 1972, completely out of print. That album you couldn't get. It wasn't, hadn't been uh, transferred to CD. It was one of the most influential albums in my life. Ray right. Charles, I love, I adore. And uh, Through the Eyes of Love, it was just, you couldn't get this thing. I'd lent it to some friend in inverted commas who disappeared from London. I never got the album back. He borrowed it from I never got it back. She'd seen it in Camden Market. I thought maybe one day I see Fischl again. I buy album oh, and I put Fischl. it. Yeah, yeah, so it's Fischl or uh, Lubimi, which means my loved one, or Davidka. She had all these names for me. She bought the album just on the off chance that we would actually meet again. Oh. That was what was in the plastic bag. She wow. gave me the album. 
How oh, was she still uh, holding a candle for you then, do you think? No, she'd... Uh, well, she I, wasn't I, holding I, a bottle. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> she was living with somebody at the time, and that okay. was the last we ever spoke. Was it? Yeah, it was beautiful. A hug, and that was it. We got the closure. We both felt okay. we needed. So you forgive her for... Oh, totally. Yeah. Totally. Oh, David, you're too nice. Oh. <laughs> what a life you've no, had, mate. No, she, gave, she gave me a lot. Yeah. <clears throat> now, you had quite a considerable um, radio career yeah. in Norway. Before he talks about that, can we just play a, a couple of the jingles? Be- before before you do the jingles, did you get it on with the girl from Bristol then, or? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the old dog. those jingles over there or were they just from your radio show in in Norway I'm happy to say that I wrote and produced over 2000 during wow. my, my, my uh, period as, as a producer writer of a uh, studio owner of uh, radio so radio commercials and radio jingles so it might be Mick Ord would call me up uh, from BBC Radio Merseyside, uh, we need a new jingle for Tony Snell. We need yeah. the weather. We need the news. So it could be a package for a whole, a whole package for a radio station, or it could be. I was so lucky. I got the Coke, um, the Coca Cola wow, wow. uh, gig. Uh, five years. Uh, and what what years were they, David? Oh man, mid nineties. And you're still there in Norway then. This is yeah, absolutely. That yeah. twenty one years. Twenty one uh, years. Yeah. Well, I went to Norway for one month. Svetlana stabbed me, and uh, so I stayed for 21 years. Okay. Yeah. yeah. But the radio thing was fantastic. Yeah. So um, my money is coming from producing commercials. All the cars, I had Mitsubishi, Volvo, Ford, I had all, you know, commercials. Coca-Cola, I did Pepsi as well. Did you get, since you were there for 21 years, which is a sizable chunk of anybody's life, yeah. did you get married or have children or anything like that? Yeah, I, I met um, uh, Astrid. And we were together. We never got married. You didn't need to in Norway. No. The, the laws were exactly the same. Yeah. So if you were with somebody for longer than 18 months 
then it was the same as being married. Married. Okay. Um, very liberal, very socialist country. Yeah. So Astrid and I were together for 12 years, and we produced Jonathan, who I'm going to see this coming Saturday. Oh. My boy. He's, he's 38. Wow. And, uh, Where does he live? Uh, he's in Oslo. Oh, is he? Yeah. And my youngest lives at home with me. So, so he's, he's 12. Yeah, so he's Norwegian, then? Johnny's Norwegian yeah. and speaks better English than the three of us. Oh, really? You don't hear a trace. Okay. If anything, there's a tiny touch of, of Liverpool. Oh, really? He's, oh, he's, wow. he's a fantastic guy. Okay. But, uh, yeah, I've got a 38-year-old and a 12-year-old. Oh. Is Jonathan musical? Johnny plays the ass off me, man. He's a great piano player. A oh, great, wow. and, and all my musician friends are, when's Johnny coming over again? Yeah. When's Johnny coming? Yeah, he's a really fun. And he uh, also went into media. Um, he was working for uh, NRK, the, the public broadcaster television. You know, when the nine o'clock news. Yeah. And you've got your newsreader, and there's some vignette going on in the background, like a picture to describe the news story. Johnny was finding those uh, spontaneously, finding a picture to match breaking news. And uh, his next step would have been uh, probably um, presenting. Okay. They wanted him, he was a good looking kid, and they wanted him uh, to, to, to consider a career as a newsreader. And then there came a round of redundancies, and he only recently got the job, and he was, you know, okay. last in, first yeah. out. Yeah. And it was really yeah. sad. That, that was the end of his media career. Yeah. Oh, okay. we, live, we live in hope. Right. And, and your other child? Leonardo. So um, I, I came back in 2003. There was little or no jazz in Liverpool. Yeah. <clears throat> Scouted around, found a fantastic venue called Metro in uh, Victoria Street. Asked the guy what his worst night was, the owner, a guy called Peter Lee, lovely yeah. guy. Peter said, Monday. I said, can I have Mondays? Yeah, if you think you can make a go of it, you can have Mondays with pleasure. And we uh, ran Monday sessions for the next three and a half years. Okay. Um, after about a month of doing that, I, got the, I always get there early to the gig. And there was the most beautiful woman I've ever seen in my life <laughs> sitting there. We'd never seen her before. Yeah. And I froze, man. I yeah. just froze. It was literally love at first sight. Wow. And this was Silvia. Okay. Where's she from? Uh, from Roma. Oh, from okay. Rome. And she's 17 years younger than me. Right. I, for the first time in my life, man, you can hear I'm just talking, talking, talking here. Yeah. I was dumbstruck, man. I yeah. couldn't speak. I waited for my best friend to come, Gary. I said, go and talk to that young woman. <laughs> go and talk to that girl. Find out who she is. Yeah. Don't stay too long. Come yeah. back and give me the whole gen. Mm -hmm. He comes back and he says, she's from Rome. She knows more about jazz than you. And she's just come to Liverpool because she's been to various towns. She wants to get away from her Italian family. She wants to improve her English. And Liverpool is the desired destination of all the places she's been to. Liverpool is the closest to Rome with the humour, yeah. with, with the whole attitude of people. So she's living here and working here. So I went across, met her, and the rest is history. We yeah. got married in Rome in 2009. Oh. And we've been together, God damn, we met in 2004. Okay. Got married in 2009. And now we have uh, Leonardo will be 12 next month. And where does Leonardo live? With us. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. yeah. He's, uh, so he's recently, scouser. He is. Yeah. He recently got himself into Blue Coat School, which uh, oh, I think is probably re regarded as, if not the best, one of the best. 
and he's also a budding piano player, so he's no nerd. He loves his footy. We're going to Goodison uh, tomorrow. Oh, he's a blue, is he? Yeah. Yes. He's Bring absolutely. him to Tramia. <laughs> we go to Tramia often. Oh, good. We often, we'd yeah. love Tramia, absolutely. Yeah. We need the support. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, what an what a amazing well, story. I mean, I mean um, jazz is particularly big in a lot of the Scandi countries, yeah. isn't it? Yeah, And um, the next track you've chosen is by a guy called Jan Gunnar Holt. Jan Gunnar Hoff. <laughs> and you sent your wife to Liverpool to learn English. Jan <laughs> Gunnar Hoff. Yes. And this is called Fly North. It is. I wrote the liner notes to this.
just um, had a flashback listening to that then. Because the first time I met you was over 20 years ago. Mm. And for some reason, I'd heard a track on the radio by a guy called Boogie Wiesenthal. And I didn't know what it was, but I loved it. Um, I was listening to an Irish radio station, and they played a track. And I met you the day after. It's so weird, this. Mm. I'd met David the day after I'd heard this track. And he'd explained he'd been in Norway. And I didn't know what nationality Boogie was. Yeah. And I just said to him, oh, I think I'm getting more into jazz because I heard this guy last night. And David said to me, I know him. True, isn't it? Absolutely weird. true. Yeah. So weird, you know, these Because you were a journalist. Yeah, I, I, at the same time as producing these com- uh, and recording these commercials and jingles, yeah. which that was how I, I, I lived yeah. uh, the, the money from that. Um, basically, um, jazz radio was a hobby. Right. I did work out a way to generate some income from that eventually. Yeah. But I ended up on 60 stations for one hour every week wow. Wow. as a jazz journalist. And yeah. I met and interviewed, it's got to be over 100 of my absolute heroes. We're talking Stan Getz, Michael Brecker, the track that you played there, Mick, the, the fusion track. Yes, yeah, Michael yeah. Brecker I met and interviewed uh, four times. Yeah. And uh, I just had this astonishing 21 years in Norway. Really amazing. And that's... That's incredible, isn't it? Pete? You know what? What an incredible journey! Yeah. And, and why? This is this is this is probably a dumb question, but why is jazz so popular in Norway and indeed quite a few of the Scandi countries? Because it's hugely popular, yeah. isn't it? Switzerland and France is a yeah. lot. Yeah, France as well. Absolutely. I think concerning Scandinavia, the, there's a great sense of creativity and and the arts. So creativity. I mean, look at the, the furniture, Denmark. Ikea Um, there is this liberal feeling this sense of creativity and that's the very nature of jazz spontaneity, creativity the arts, leaning to the left Uh, you know and so Norwegians just automatically seem to to pick it up love it and then become heavily involved but beautifully adding their own Uh, flavour to it so a touch of the ethnic yeah, their interpretation, yeah. their way uh, of describing the aurora borealis, uh, their way uh, of describing the fjords. It's the way the all the best music is made, isn't it? When when different uh, you know uh, ingredients are thrown in, it's like mongrel music almost. Yeah. You know that's what yes. gives it life and vitality. Absolutely. Uh, you know a hybrid of things. Yeah. Uh, if it's if something's too pure, it just withers on the vine. Well, look at look at dogs. The most intelligent dogs, oh, I'm told, are mongrels. Yeah. And they live the longest. Ah, I didn't know that. Ah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So well, the hybrid, you're right. Absolutely. Well, you've got to publish that book, mate. <laughs> Thank you. Without yeah. question. Yeah. I'll, I'll be checking up on you. Oh, <laughs> and when the book is out, we're going to get you in again. Yeah. Thank you. Absolutely. Listen, thanks for doing this, because it's yeah. been one of my favourite ones we've done. I know there's a, there's a... He's told us a few stories off-air as well, which we couldn't quite <laughs> put into this, but they were fantastic as well. There are many Hopefully more. they'll be in the book, David. <laughs> yeah, I hope so. Great to meet both of you. Thank you very much for this opportunity. Oh, no. Thanks, mate. Great stuff. Great stuff.